Florida's West Coast, get ready or get out. The lead starts right now. Hurricane Ian closes in on the United States as Florida Governor Ron DeSantis warns of catastrophic flooding and life-threatening storm surge. The rush to get people out while those who stay scramble to stock up on essential supplies and hurricane hunters fly directly into the storm to try to get Ian's latest track and strength. Plus, this hour, we're live near Russia's border where thousands of Russians are trying to avoid getting dragged into Putin's war on Ukraine. We're going to go there next. And the new lawsuit that challenges President Biden's plan to cancel student loans, what this case could mean if you thought you were going to get your loan forgiven. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with our national lead, Hurricane Ian, barreling toward Florida. Right now, it is a Category 3 storm, meaning Ian's winds could reach up to 129 miles per hour. Ian is expected to strengthen into a Category 4 storm later tonight, with winds up to 156 miles per hour as it churns over the warm waters of the Gulf of Mexico. Mandatory evacuations are in effect in parts of Florida's western coast, major airports In Tampa and also in Orlando and Central Florida will be shut down. Today, Governor DeSantis is warning people should expect to lose power once the storm hits. And it could be days or even longer before power is able to be restored. Parts of Cuba lost power earlier today, with Ian slamming into the western part of that country earlier. Already, the outer bands of Ian are lashing the southern tip of Florida in the Keys. As you can see in this brand new video, CNN's Bill Weir is in Bradenton, Florida, near Tampa for, Tampa for us, and CNN's Randy Kay is just south of that in Punta Gorda. We'll get to both of them in just a second, but let's start the Hurricane Ian's latest track and CNN meteorologist Jennifer Gray. Jennifer, what's the current outlook for Florida? What are you mostly concerned about? It's not looking good for Florida at all. I'm mostly concerned about that stretch of coast from Tampa to Naples and where this storm hits is going to be devastating. We could see potential record storm surge for some of these locations. Uh, The winds right now are 120 miles per hour. We've got gusts of 140. It's moving to the north at 10. And as you mentioned earlier, expected to strengthen into a category four. This is most likely going to make landfall as a major storm. And it's also expected to slow down dramatically once it gets very close to shore. And so that means if this storm is Moving at a walking pace, we're looking at long duration of this storm surge. The storm surge and the rain is going to be the two biggest impacts from this storm. We could see up to 12 feet of storm surge in one of these cities. Wherever this storm makes landfall, that's where we're going to see potentially uh, that much storm surge. And we also could see 30 inches of rain. So the flooding is going to be uh, catastrophic potentially for some of these cities. So eight to 12 feet of storm surge, wherever this storm makes landfall, right around the center and just to the right of the center. And then as you spread out, it gets a little bit less. So right here, based on the current track, we're looking at potential for nine feet of storm surge right around Port Charlotte, Boca Grande, Fort Myers Beach. So that's why these evacuation orders are in effect. And if you are in evacuation zone, get out. This is Not a storm that you want to stay for, for sure. We're looking at uh, the rain, as you mentioned, already starting to impact South Florida. We're going to start seeing tropical storm gusts across the southern portion of the state, Jake, as early as tonight. And then conditions continuing to deteriorate from then on out. All right, Jennifer Gray in the CNN Weather Center. Thanks so much. The Pentagon says more than 3,000 Florida National Guard Service members are preparing to help with the state's response to Hurricane Ian. Let's go to CNN's Randy Kay as people in Florida brace 
for Ian. This is the type of storm surge that, that, that is life-threatening. With Hurricane Ian barreling toward Florida, many here aren't taking any chances. Guadalupe Gomez has been boarding up his home for days. We take care of everything. Every time it's coming, we say prepare for us. He says at least 12 of his family members will take shelter here. The concern with Hurricane Ian is not just the wind, it's also the rain and storm surge. Nearly 7 million people along Florida's west coast between Fort Myers and Clearwater, including all of the Tampa Bay area, are under a storm surge warning. Storm surge is always one of our largest concerns here in, in southwest Florida. Uh, you know, 90% of fatalities occur due to water. Charlotte Harbor and the cities of Port Charlotte and Punta Gorda are expecting the highest storm surge, with 8 to 12 feet possible. Around Tampa, a record surge is expected. There's going to be a lot of water. There's no doubt about that. A storm that slows down for 24 to 48 hours and just continuously dumps rain into the Tampa Bay area is uh, devastating. Hurricane Ian is expected to dump at least two to three months worth of rainfall by Friday, possibly as much as 24 inches of rain in Tampa and west central Florida. You can't stay in your home. Uh, you know, whether you're a great swimmer or not, it doesn't matter. It only takes 18 inches of water to uh, be a life-threatening situation. Tampa's airport taking no chances. With the, uh, the storm and the, the intensity of the winds, we will close today at 5 p.m. It's 5 p.m. today, uh, no more uh, commercial flights. Evacuation orders expanding since Monday, with shelters open for those without other options to wait out the storm. I've never been in the hurricane. This is my first time, and my first time at a shelter. But I feel better here than if I would be alone at home. Those riding out the storm racing to get sandbags. Facing lines for gas. We're out of water, folks, no water. And the familiar scramble to stock up on food and water. Then, hurry up and wait. And the Emergency Operations Center, Jake, here in Charlotte County just held an update uh, as a press conference, and they told us that there are now 120,000 people under evacuation orders. That's about two-thirds of the entire uh, Charlotte County. And that's probably a wise move, Jake, because if you consider this, we are in downtown Punta Gorda. We are just on the edge of the Peace River and Charlotte Harbor. They're talking about a 10 to 12 foot storm surge, possibly. This entire area will be underwater very likely come tomorrow, Jake. All right, Randy Kay in Punta Gorda, Florida. Thank you so much. Let's go about 70 miles north now. CNN chief climate correspondent Bill Weir is in Bradenton, Florida. And Bill, Hurricane Ian is expected to intensify quickly, become a cat four storm in the near future. How much is the climate crisis to blame for, for any of this? A lot. Uh, mainly the one word you mentioned there, intensification. Uh, warm water is hurricane fuel. It's vitamins. It's steroids to a hurricane. And we saw this over the weekend in the South China Sea when Typhoon Noru went from 85 miles an hour to 155 in six hours. It's unlike anything our team at CNN, uh, the weather unit, has seen in their careers. And that's what we were worried about here in the Gulf as well, as, as Ian started churning and picking up speed and getting stronger and stronger as it ate up all that warm water. We're here in Bradenton now, near Sarasota. This 
path now it seems more vulnerable than just a few hours ago. We were up uh, a little further north there in St. Petersburg. I think we have some footage of the mile-long line of cars waiting to get their allotment of 10 sandbags, which is not going to do a whole lot of good, sadly, for folks who are, you know, two or three feet above sea level if the surge is what they say it's going to be. We just saw a family here at this beach volleyball court using trash bags to fashion sort of improvised sandbags. So we're in that part now. Uh, Jake, this is not your granddaddy's hurricane. These storms now are stronger and wetter than they ever were before. We have a lot more people. I think about a th the population of Florida, I think, goes up by 900 or 1,000 people a day. A lot of people want to live near the water and putting themselves in this uh, situation now, some for the first time to understand the strength of a hurricane like this. But this time tomorrow, this part of Florida will be getting hammered. Jake? All right, Bill, we are in Bradenton, Florida. Thanks so much. Then there's Puerto Rico which is still dealing with the aftermath of Hurricane Fiona. Why a loaded fuel ship stuck off the coast is not allowed to help, though President Biden does have the power to change that. Plus, how Putin's veiled nuclear threats became even more alarming after Russia's so-called victory in its sham referenda. Then, the federal sedition trial, considered the most significant yet among cases involving January 6th defendants. Stay with us. This just in Hurricane Ian, the powerful Category 3 storm currently lashing the southern tip of Florida, is also affecting plans here in Washington, D.C. Multiple sources tell CNN that the January 6th committee is expected to postpone tomorrow's scheduled hearing in light of the dangerous storm hitting the U.S. The panel was set to reveal new evidence it has uncovered since its last hearing in July. In today's politics lead, jury selection is now underway in what could be the most significant January 6th trial yet. Five members of the far-right militia Oath Keepers including their leader, Stuart Rhodes, face a maximum sentence of 20 years in federal prison each for their alleged roles in the deadly capital attack. It's the first sedition trial in the U.S. in more than a decade, and that one a decade ago was thrown out by the judge. CNN's Sarah Seidner is following the case for us. Sarah, what happened in court today, and, and what are prosecutors expected to argue at trial? So they have hundreds and hundreds of pages of text, and they've got hundreds of hours of video uh, that we're all expecting to see. Much of this video you have seen, and some of it potentially we haven't yet seen from January 6th. But what they are trying to say is that this group of people, and this is just the first group, but they are charged with the most serious charge you can possibly be charged with so far in this case. And what they're charged with is basically trying to overthrow the government by force or planning to do so. Uh, and some of the members, about five of the six, are all former military um, and several, there's one member, um, two members, excuse me, that were outside of the court. And so a lot of people go, well, how is that going to work? Well, what they're trying to say is the plotting and planning happened between all of them, including the founder, perhaps the most high-profile defendant we've seen yet in January 6th, the founder of the Oath Keepers, uh, was arrested and is now part of this group of five who are all facing these charges. Uh, we will see things uh, from the government, such as they tried to get a cache of weapons, they were talking about how they would get those weapons uh, into Washington, D.C. Uh, to try and overthrow uh, the, the, the government to stop, for example, Joe Biden from becoming the president. Um, and then they talk about some of the things that happened even after January 6th and that there, was, there were more plans, according to the government, by this group uh, to go forward and to try and stop Joe Biden from being sworn in as president. So there's a ton of evidence. But... There is, of course, a defense. Some of the defense is, oh, well, they were just gathering because they thought the Insurrection Act, believe it or not, was going to be called upon by the 
current president, which was Donald Trump at the time, yeah. and that they were just preparing for that. Interesting. There's an, a, a separate case I want to ask you about yeah. because one of the January 6th rioters who assaulted uh, then D.C. Metropolitan Police Officer Michael Fanone, he was sentenced today. What, what happened there? Um, the judge was very pointed. Um, Kyle Young was sentenced and in the court. The judge looked at him and said, on January 6th, the violence was you. And so she made very clear, he called, she called him a one-man wrecking ball, um, and she gave him 86 months. That's 7.1 years um, for, for those of us, if you don't want to do the math, bless you. Um, uh, and so, look, this is a very serious case, obviously. Assaulting a police officer. Um, he is still dealing with his injuries, as you know. I know you've talked to, to Officer Fanone. Um, and one by one, we even heard this in the other courtroom, this is all happening in the same court, right, mm. in the same courthouse. What you notice that is very different than other cases that I've, I've covered is there are people inside that courtroom. Sometimes there are family members of those who are uh, on trial, but there are also people there that believe that these defendants, the January 6th defendants, are being unfairly tried. And so you have this toxic mix, I think, of, of people in and out of the court um, that are constantly coming in and out and wearing the T-shirt saying, you know, the January 6th insurrectionists, quote-unquote, um, are not getting the, the, their due, their right defense. So it is really an interesting mix of people. Hmm. All right, Sarah Seidner, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, protests in Iran igniting demonstrations around the world, but the challenge still ahead as people try to change policy with the Iranian regime. Stay with us. Topping our world lead, quote, will be reunited with Russia very soon. That from the head of the so-called Donetsk People's Republic, just one of the four areas internationally recognized as part of Ukraine, soon to be annexed by Russia. Unsurprisingly, Russia claims the fake election was a sweep in their favor, while Ukraine, NATO, most of the United Nations moved to condemn and sanction Putin's blatant and illegal land grab. Let's bring in CNN's Dick Peyton Walsh, who's in Kramatorsk, Ukraine. And Nick, Russia isn't just expanding their borders. This is likely a calculated step in a broader, uh, much more sinister plot. Yes, certainly. And we are getting the much choreographed, much expected results we were thinking we would get from these sham referenda in four areas. Notably in Zaporizhia, it appears that all the votes are in and a low, comparatively no number of 93% people there are in favour of joining Russia. Differing numbers in the 90s, differing levels of counting so far in the other three areas. For example, though, this theatre is going to move ahead fast. We're going to expect the Russia-appointed head of the Luhansk region to head to Moscow and kickstart the theatre there of this process of annexation essentially being rubber-stamped by the two chambers of Russia's parliament. Possibly, according to the British uh, Ministry of Defence, we might hear a speech from Vladimir Putin on Friday about this to those parliaments. But it starts a series of events here which are deeply troubling in terms of the course of events on the battlefield. We're seeing Vladimir Putin really struggle with his conventional forces. The real army has essentially lost over the past six or seven months and the partial mobilisation he's put into play, that's just not going to translate according to what we're seeing already in terms of dissent and poor equipping. It's not going to translate into tens of thousands of real fighters here to change the course of events on the battlefield. So we're now seeing Kiev and Washington and saying they're not going to recognize the likely annexation of these territories by Russia. And that leaves the dynamic on the battlefield still likely moving in Ukraine's favor. So Vladimir Putin, he's suffering at home 
from this partial mobilization and the descent that it's caused. He's certainly not doing well on the international stage. He's likely to see US sanctions after this formal annexation. And essentially his position relies on projecting strength. So this is where so many are concerned about this nuclear rhetoric we've been hearing over the past week or so. It is one tool he has yet to reach for. You might argue he could use his air force more and carpet bomb or even more horrifyingly chemical weapons. But there are concerns now that he's putting himself into a corner where he has to project strength and change the course of events here during the war and is increasingly under pressure at home. A very tense week ahead, Jake. All right, Nick Payton Walsh in Ukraine. Thank you so much. Russians are on the run. Thousands heading for the borders, fleeing Putin's new draft orders. Finland's border guard reports a 152% increase in Russians crossing the border over the previous week. And these new satellite images show a nearly 10-mile-long line of cars waiting to get into the country of Georgia. CNN's Melissa Bell is on the Georgia-Russian border right now. Melissa, we're hearing... Military draft papers will be given to Russian citizens trying to leave, but is that stopping anyone? Uh, no, on the contrary, the sense here really, Jake, is of a much more determined and desperate effort to get out of the country. This is a scene tonight at the Lars Crossing that has seen this massive increase over the course of the last few days. The cars are so backed up uh, that it is on foot, uh, carrying what they can, that you see uh, not just uh, fighting aged men leaving on their own, leaving everything they had behind them, uh, but families as well. Uh, we've watched uh, elderly women making their way across the border, uh, young women with their children uh, accompanying the men uh, that they're fleeing with. And uh, it, it, it's some pretty harrowing tales. We spoke to one family that had left their car 18 kilometers back because that's how long that queue of traffic now is. Remember that it's about a 20-hour drive from Moscow to the nearest town just on the other side of that border with Russia. And there they're having to abandon their cars like the family we spoke to. They then walk the last 18 kilometers here looking incredibly haggard and exhausting, exhausted and scared about what's happening next, cursing uh, some of them as they come uh, Putin along uh, the way. Georgian authorities are doing what they can to keep things flowing here at the border, but it has been a massive influx of people over the course just of the last couple of days this week over last week a 45 percent increase in the number of people coming across this border jake and for having watched over the course of the last few months uh, so many millions of ukrainians uh, fleeing their homes with nothing it is quite extraordinary tonight here to watch uh, russians uh, doing the same jake all right melissa bell in georgia for us thank you so much turning to the 11th day of protests in dozens of cities across iran ignited over the death of 22-year-old Masajina Amini in Iran's morality police custody, detained for the crime of not covering her hair. Iran state media say at least 41 Iranians have been killed in the subsequent violence and oppression by the government, but the risk of death and police crackdowns have not quashed the apparent uprising. This woman stood near a pile of burning rubble in Iran's capital, Tehran, and shouted, Death to Khamenei! the supreme leader of Iran. Let's bring in Iranian journalist and activist Masi Alinejad. Uh, Masi, it's good to see you again. It's clear Iranians are not just fighting against this mandated hijab. They're, they're risking their lives to overthrow decades of this oppressive, zealot uh, dictatorship. Does it feel as though real change could actually come? To me and millions of other Iranians who are risking their lives actually within this society, this is a women revolution. This is Iran revolution. And I have to tell you that um, the brutal death of Mahsa Amini K 
can be a tipping point for the Islamic Republic because Iranian made up their mind. You know, they're facing guns and bullets. The number of the people who got killed, it's more than what you mentioned, Jake, because the regime actually cut off the Internet. They, they, they're trying to stop the rest of the world to understand how many people get killed. They want to hide the level of brutality. So, but right now, what can survive the Islamic Republic? It's the West. If they don't take action, of course, the Iranian regime will continue killing people. So what, what does the West need to do? Because I have heard some human rights activists say that some sanctions could actually hurt the protesters. Uh, what do you want the West to do? First of all, Jake, you have uh, many of those activists in CNN for years and years saying the same thing. But have you ever heard a single slogan against sanction in the streets right now? No. Have you ever seen people burning the flag of America? No. They clearly saying death to dictator. Right. The target sanction must be uh, continued because Iranian people are being killed by the same murderers. But let me tell you some, something. Jake Sullivan actually decent man when he condemned uh, the brutality of the police right now. And he condemned the, the murder of Mahsa Amini. But at the same time, Jake Sullivan says that they want to conti- continue negotiating with the same murderers. It means that they're going to give billions of dollar, dollars to the same people that they condemn. So that's not going to help people. I remember that Jake Sullivan mentioned about this, that Obama made a mistake by not supporting Green Revolution. You remember? Mm-hmm. They're doing the same right now. Iranians are risking their lives and they want to see that Biden and administration do the right thing. And then take action, you know, ask your allies from European countries to cut any ties with the Islamic Republic. Put human rights condition uh, under nuclear deal. You cannot just you have to send a right signal uh, to those Iranians who are fighting for democracy. All right. So just to just to be clear, you want the United States, you want the Biden administration to stop negotiating on the Iran nuclear deal uh, because it, it or at least put in human rights conditions with it. Uh, you want more sanctions on the morality police and others in uh, the Iranian government. I'm, ju- no, I'm just trying to get a list here. And also you want U.S. allies uh, to also cut off ties and also impose sanctions. What else? Kick all the diplomats out from here. There is Iran's interest section, Jake, in Washington, D.C. Come with me. Let's go, both of us, in America. Let's go to Iran's interest section. They won't let me to go in because my hair is not covered. This is 21st century. Mahsa got killed just because of a bit of her hair was visible. Women are getting killed right now. Men are getting killed right now. And what are these people doing here in America? I want your audiences. Send email to, to your senator, to your representative, and tell them that this is 21st century. I myself, I took to the streets in New York proudly, proudly, Women's March, saying, my body, my choice. But it seems that for my fellow sisters in Congress, it's my bodies. It's not my choice in the Middle East, in Iran and Afghanistan, because for years and years we have been ignored. Now I'm calling you. Solidarity itself, it is beautiful, but it's not enough. Right. You know, we have so many Western female politicians who went to my country. They obeyed compulsory job law and they said, shh, we don't want to cause Islamophobia. Believe me. By legitimizing compulsory hijab laws, you are responsible of the brutal death of Mahsa Amini. I call on Ilhan Omar, AOC. I call on all female uh, congresswomen. 
just don't, we don't need empty words. You can call people, we need a women's march across the West because if you don't keep your sisterhood, you don't support women of Iran, women of Afghanistan, our murderers, Islamic terrorists will get united and they will end feminism, democracy. They will end everything. We're not just fighting for ourselves. We are fighting for dignity and freedom for everyone around the world. Yeah, I saw you, you tweeted, you called for, uh, for AOC and, and Congresswoman Omar to go to the site of the former Iranian embassy in Washington, D.C. with you. What, what do you want to do with them there? Look, not former. Right now, Iran using Pakistan embassy as, a, as they called it Iran's interest section. But there is no interest for Iranians. Those killers have an uh, interest section here, but they don't allow me to go there. That's why I'm calling all the women's rights activists here. And I want Ilhan Omar to wear hijab, come with me, support my rights to step into Iran's interest section without being forced to cover myself. Is that too much to ask? Because Ilhan Omar actually came with a legislation saying that we're going to fight everyone who causes Islamophobia in America. I deserve to be, I mean, I, I have the right to be scared of Taliban, Islamic Republic, Sharia laws, because Mahsa got killed. Many pe- people like, uh, many people in the West putting the blame on sanction. Jake, when Iranian people were suffering from sanction, the money went to Bashar Assad. The money went to, uh, to Hassan Nasrallah. The, the, when Iranian uh, apologists were on CNN saying that we don't have money for medicine because of sanction, they were lying. Because Javad Zarif came on TV and said that we just uh, built a, a hospital, an hospital in Venezuela. The money go to morality police. Did you know that we have 51 religious institutions during sanction? The budget of these religious institutions got increased. The money for this religious institutions is like morality police, killing yeah. more Mahsa. So don't, don't buy this narrative. Iranians want to get rid of the Islamic Republic, and the, they put the blame on those who actually took hostages. Right. And now their relatives are here in America. I know that I'm talking a lot because I have to make it clear, and I have to get the attention yeah. of Americans to support us. The relatives of the Ayatollahs are here in America, and they should be blamed not America. So help us. Iranians, people are facing guns and bullets. They want to be heard and support. They need action. Absolutely. Masi Alinejad, thank you so much. We always appreciate having you on. Coming up next, the technicality upheld by the Biden administration that's preventing Puerto Rico from getting critical aid in the aftermath of Hurricane Fiona. Stay with us. International lead nine days after Hurricane Fiona hit Puerto Rico, hundreds of thousands of Puerto Ricans are still without power. And a British petroleum ship, a BP ship, that's loaded with diesel fuel and could help bring relief to the island is being blocked from docking at a port on the island because of a technicality in a World War I era shipping law called the Jones Act. Let's bring in CNN's MJ Lee. MJ, why is the Biden administration not just uh, giving a waiver for the Jones Act to allow this boat to dock to provide this diesel for Puerto Ricans who need it? Yeah, as you just said, Jake, it all comes down to the so-called Jones Act, which is this kind of obscure and almost a century-old shipping law that basically says that all goods that are transported uh, between U.S. ports have to be carried on ships uh, that were made and owned and operated by Americans. And at the White House press briefing today, both the FEMA administrator and the White House press secretary uh, were asked multiple questions about the waiver issue that you just mentioned. And their response was basically that they have to look at every waiver 
waiver requests individually, including uh, the waiver request for this one, and that they really just need to see whether there is the proper legal authority to do so. Uh, so we don't know exactly what the timeline is going to be. And they did also say that the ultimate decision would come from the DHS secretary, Jake. And what are what are people from Puerto Rico saying about this? I mean, they're basically saying that they need a lot of help and that time is of the essence. We know that the Puerto Rico governor has said that he is personally asking uh, the, D- the DHS secretary to get involved and to expedite, expedite this process. We've also, of course, uh, heard from members of Congress, other activists who have all spoken up to say, uh, look, this is help. The diesel that is on this ship uh, that could really be useful for the people who are really uh, trying to recover from Hurricane Fiona. A lot of people on the island uh, are still without any power. So, again, uh, they really think that time is of the essence and that this waiver could go a long way in getting people the fuel that they need and the power that they need as they try to recover after this hurricane. All right, MJ Lee, thanks so much. As Puerto Rico tries to recover from Hurricane Fiona, Hurricane Ian is now barreling towards Florida. Here to discuss how his state is preparing for the storm is Florida Senator and former Governor Rick Scott. Senator, thanks for joining us. Hurricane Ian expected to make landfall in Florida as a major hurricane tomorrow night. Is your state prepared for this? Well, I've talked to a lot of people. I've reached out to the governor. I've talked to sheriffs and mayors all across the state, emergency management teams all across the state. Everybody's working hard, but it really comes down to you. Uh, Every individual has got to take this seriously. They've got to follow uh, the news such as CNN and say, hey, how this is this is significant wind. But what's that's going to be bad. But what's going to kill you is the water storm surge. We've got a lot of low lying areas on the west coast of Florida, four, five, six, ten feet of storm surge. You will not survive. We're yeah. going to have flooding. You got People have got to take this seriously. If you're told to evacuate, evacuate now. Not tomorrow. Evacuate right now. I know the governor's office is concerned about getting the word out to people, especially in southwest Florida. Do you have a message for people on the west coast of Florida who are right now refusing to evacuate? You know, you can rebuild that house, uh, but you can't rebuild your life. Uh, take care of yourself, your family. And don't put first responders in harm's way that are going to try to rescue you uh, right after the storm passes. Nobody can rescue you during the middle of a storm. So be smart. Um, Don't take a risk. Uh, I remember with Michael, um, you know, we were going to have storm surge. And everybody kept looking at, oh, the size of the storm is not that big. Well, ultimately, the storm surge is what killed people. We lost people up there because they said, oh, I've been through a one or a two or a three before. But you've never been through five and six and nine foot of storm surge. The West Coast is already saturated with water. We're going to see a lot of trees down. We're going to see a lot of flooding. But this storm surge is deadly. So if you're if you're in evacuation zone, these emergency management uh, centers around the state know what they're doing. Get out now. We mentioned this earlier uh, with with Bill Weir. But, you know, one of the challenges is uh, so many people move to Florida every year because they want to live in Florida for various reasons. So you have people there who have never experienced a hurricane before who are about to experience their first one. Explain to them what you mean by the storm surge, because for some of the Floridians listening right now, this is all new. Well, first off, a lot of people just think about the, the you know, the rating as, oh, it's a category three. Well, that's just the wind. Uh, it doesn't talk about the breath. But with this storm surge, we have better and better data about how high the water will go above median high tide. So if it says five feet, think about five feet of water coming towards you, pushing you. I don't think you're going to survive that. That's what could happen if we get five foot or six foot. We're talking about as much as 10 foot of storm surge. You will not survive this. I watched this with Irma uh, because we got nine foot of storm surge down the Keys. I watched it with Michael where we lost people uh, up in Mexico Beach all because of storm surge. And it could take out the entire bottom half of your house, which means your house is gone. 
So I remember the day after uh, Michael, I was talking to family members that were looking for their family members. If they said, oh, they lived there for 30 years, they survived all these storms. Well, you can't survive big storm surge. So I'm just telling people, don't take a chance. I mean, your family loves you, we all love you, we want everybody to stay safe. Really listen to what they're telling you. The locals know what they're doing. They were following what the National Hurricane Center is saying, the National Weather Service on the storm surge, listen to them. You know, be prepared. What's the worst case? So you see your life is safe. Yeah, uh, and I know that having been governor there for two terms, uh, you've seen more death and destruction than you want. Um, and the destruction might not be uh, preventable, but the death can be. I want to ask you, because these storms are getting more intense, uh, and one scientist told CNN that as the climate crisis advances and the earth continues to warm, these monster storms are going to occur more frequently and become more intense and therefore more deadly. Florida is one of the first victims of the climate crisis. We see uh, Miami's uh, Republican mayor arguing this is no longer theoretical. At what point will you and, and Senator Rubio and others in your party who are seeing this devastation firsthand, your constituents, your, your friends, um, start to push serious solutions to this problem uh, because w we see this happening now. It, it's it's no longer theoretical, as the Republican mayor of Miami says. It's happening to Florida. Well, it, it, clearly the climate is changing. Clearly, we have to continue to you know come up with solutions. I did that as governor. Uh, actually, I've worked with mayors all across the state, including Mayor Suarez down in Miami. We talked about it today because I talked to him about this storm. We've got to do everything we can to deal with this. Uh, and so, the, and there are things that we can do. We've got to keep coming up with new ideas. And I'm going to keep doing that here. I'm always open to new discussions. So what I'm going to do is I, I know uh, the climate's changing. I know we've got to continue to do things. I did it as governor. I'm trying to do it up here. I'm open to having conversations with anybody. Are there parts of Florida where people should no longer develop because of the climate crisis? I think what we got to do is we got to be very clear of we, you know what we can do to make sure we can prevent uh, these problems and, and make sure. And I, I don't I, developers don't want to develop where somebody's going to lose their house, and we can't redevelop areas where we know uh, you're going to you know you're going to continue to lose your house. So we've got to constantly come up with ways like that, better building codes, but also we got to deal with sea level rise, beach renourishment, all these things. All right, everybody watching on the west coast of Florida right now, you heard your senator, your former governor. Uh, Rick Scott, get out if you're on the west coast of Florida. Please evacuate. Thank you, Senator. Appreciate your time today. Thanks, Jake. Have a good day. Coming up next, the lawsuit trying to challenge President Biden's plan to cancel millions of dollars in student loans. Might this impact the money that perhaps you thought would be forgiven? Stay with us. In our money lead, President Biden's estimated $400 billion plan to cancel some student debt faces a new legal challenge. A lawsuit filed today by a public interest attorney in Indiana is looking to stop Biden's forgiveness plan before it takes effect. The argument is that the policy is an abuse of executive power. Let's bring in CNN's Rahel Solomon. Rahel, what more do we know about this lawsuit? Well, Jake, as you pointed out, at the center of the lawsuit is that lawyer. His name is Frank Garrison from Indiana. He says that as part of Biden's student loan forgiveness program, his student loan debt will be automatically wiped and he doesn't want it to be. So we know that 8 million borrowers will have their student debt forgiveness automatically wiped. And he says that is part of the problem. It's going to leave him with a tax bill that will ultimately leave him worse off than if he continued. Hard to believe. But the lawyers behind the lawsuit say that this will also impact others in at least six other states. When the White House was asked about this lawsuit earlier, Jake, uh, the White House said that the claims are baseless and that no one will be forced. But when I talked to one of the lawyers behind the suit just a short time ago, they said that is not true. There is no process at this point to opt out. 
and that is part of the problem. That details are still very limited. We get this lawsuit, Jake, on the same day that we get another look at how much this program could cost. This projection coming from the Congressional Budget Office that the price tag now looking to be about $400 billion, according to projections today. Put another way, in 2023, for example, CBO estimates that cash flows to the Treasury will be reduced by about 0.2 percent. Uh, that said, some Senate Democrat, Democrats coming out today uh, saying that while they, while they don't necessarily agree with the projections or all of the projections, they still, however, called the relief transformative. When I asked Jake uh, those lawyers if they feel like this will uh, succeed or go much farther, they said they're hoping so because uh, this relief could take impact or could take effect as early as the first week of October. Rahel, meanwhile, a a recent Bank of America survey shows that the cost of living is outpacing pay for more than 70 percent of U.S. workers. A a lot of Americans can relate to that right now. Absolutely, right, because you still have inflation at about 8.3 percent, and we know that for most, wages are not going up nearly as quickly. So uh, this Bank of America study suggesting that nearly three out of four workers say that inflation is outpacing how much they bring home, and that's leading them to tap into their savings, for example. Jake, 21 percent say they had to tap into their emergency savings. About the same say they had to work extra hours just to keep up with inflation. About the same say they're just looking for a higher-paying job and 6% say that they have had to resort to a 401k hardship withdrawal. So that is part of the pain. We know that rising borrowing costs, of course, cause pain, but so does inflation. All right, Rahel Solomon, thanks so much. We're just getting in the new forecast from the National Hurricane Center on Hurricane Ian. We're going to go to the CNN Severe Weather Center with that update next. Stay with us. Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, you can run and you can hide, but you cannot escape the law unless, of course, you're the Texas attorney general and you don't want to get served. Plus, will Democrats gamble in Michigan pay off? The seat could determine control of the House, theoretically, and the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee spent almost half a million dollars boosting a MAGA candidate to the GOP primary base because they thought he would be easier to beat in the general election. But as Michigan voters weigh in, might MAGA get the last laugh? And leading this hour, a hundred-year storm bearing down on Florida. By this time tomorrow, Hurricane Ian may be a Category 4 hurricane with winds up to 150 miles per hour. After undergoing a period of rapid intensification in the warm waters off the Gulf of Mexico. But the real threat is flooding. Some areas could see storm surges up to 12 feet. The monster hurricane could sit over the Tampa area region for for two whole days. And mandatory evacuations have been ordered for 1.75 million Floridians. Let's go straight to Tom Sater in the CNN Severe Weather Center. And Tom, uh, I think you just got that updated storm forecast uh, for Hurricane Ian. Uh, What are you seeing? Well, the latest advisory has uh, a few slight changes, Jake. Uh, Sustained winds are still at 120 miles per hour. It's still a Category 3. The gusts, however, have increased somewhat to 150. So the storm is getting stronger. The pressure is still going to drop, and when the pressure drops, the winds take a while to respond to that pressure drop, and they start to really blow up. We know one thing, though. This storm is getting larger in its size, which is going to affect more uh, of the state of Florida. In fact, tropical storm force winds are almost a swath of 300 miles, and hurricane force winds are now outward almost 80 miles. So, again, as the storm continues to move toward Florida, it's going to go through some reorganization. And we might be seeing the beginning of that now. If you notice the well-defined eye, even though we're seeing some bright purple, deep convection, it looks like the eye is trying to shrink somewhat. 
This may be the beginning of what we call an eyewall replacement cycle. These major hurricanes can only sustain their strength for so long. It's like spinning a top on a table. After a while, that top's going to start to wobble. It's a better indication on radar. When you look at the eye, you'll start to see those bright yellow bands. But if you notice a secondary band out and around the eye some distance away, what happens is once it goes through this eye wall replacement cycle, the eye collapse, and then we'll watch the convection around it tighten back up. And it's like getting strong again. Each time it goes through one of these, and it can take several hours to do so, it gets stronger and it gets larger. This has enough time, unfortunately, to go through this cycle before it makes landfall. So on a grander scale, we're already starting to see some tornado warnings. This is in the Everglades right now. They have now posted a tornado watch that will be in effect until 5 a.m. That's an extraordinary amount of space and time to deal with that. And those problems with those tornadoes are not like in the Midwest and in the plains. They spin up without any notice, usually EF1s, EF2s. Okay. Category four before landfall. There has been significant differences, Jake, as we mentioned, from where it was going to stall off the coast of the bay and turning to the right. And we still could see that happen. There's still plenty of time for this to happen. When you have a change, this is not unusual. A great sigh of relief for some communities, but others communities staring heartache right in the eye in dire straits. How does this shift change how Ian will, will directly impact Florida? Okay, first and foremost, because of the angle of approach, it's going to be making landfall sooner than we thought 24 hours ago. And that landfall may be a difference between 12 and 18 hours because it's farther south. Because of the angle of approach, as I mentioned a few moments ago, it's going to scrape a a large portion of Florida from areas of the southwest all the way to the northeast. Remember, those tropical storm force winds are out 300. The biggest issue is going to be two things. It's the surge and the rainfall amounts. Tampa Bay, which was looking at worst case scenario, may actually be on that northern edge and will be where for a while they may see a little bit of a surge on the south facing coastlines of the bay. But then you'll see the bay empty. Almost the water levels go down because as it circulates counterclockwise, it'll dump that bay out. Now, good news for them. However, they're going to be in the heavier rainfall. To the south is where we're seeing a significant difference. First, into the bay. This is not what we saw yesterday. So again, those south-facing areas still will see a little bit of a surge. It's down to the south. It's from Sarasota, down toward uh, Venice, down toward, again, in Port Charlotte, where we're seeing significant increases, several miles inland. Of course, we'll be talking more about this throughout the night. All right, Tom Sander, thanks so much. Nearly 7 million people along the coast, including all of Tampa Bay, are facing the risk of life-threatening storm surge and hurricane-force winds as high as 129 miles per hour. CNN's Ryan Young reports for us now from Tampa on how those in the danger zone are preparing for Ian's menacing approach. Good. Hey, we're coming by and letting everybody know that you're in a mandatory evacuation situation. The Tampa Bay area in its final hours of hurricane preparations. Tampa Bay police making last-ditch efforts to warn residents in flood-risk zones to leave now. It's a reinforcement to let them know that, hey, you're, you're in an area where you need to evacuate. This is not a drill. This is not the time to stay. Serious warnings to residents here. This vulnerable area expecting to be in the crosshairs of Hurricane Inn as it barrels toward the west coast of Florida. We have over 120 miles of coastline just in the city of Tampa. 
at least 2.5 million Floridians under various evacuation orders. It's a storm that's predicted to cause water damage like none before it. You're talking about 10 or 15 inches of rain on top of the surge. That's unprecedented. No no infrastructure is built for that. With this hurricane, a direct hit isn't necessarily to cause severe flooding. The slow-moving storm is predicted to stall just off the coast of Tampa Bay starting Wednesday evening. It's going to be in our rivers. It's going to be in our streams. It's going to be in our canals. It's going to be in our stormwater uh, drains and ditches. Sandbag locations around Tampa closed today at 2 o'clock. Residents doing what they can before heading out. Well, What's we're late. We're late, but we are. We think that if it is a storm surge issue, we will try to seal the openings of the house. Former Florida Congressman Jim Davis and his wife aren't taking chances. They're prepping their house and getting out. I'm not a very good gambler, and it's a bit of a gamble if you don't take it seriously. Jake, at 2 o'clock today, the city stopped giving out the sandbags. So many people were in line to get those sandbags. We saw some lines a mile long. They got 10 bags each to try to protect their homes. We wanted to show you something right here that's happening now. You can see workers who are working on that aqua gate right there. That's outside Tampa General Hospital. What they're hoping is by creating that barrier right there, they can stop some of the water from going in to the critical area of the hospital. That's a trauma one level uh, hospital. So you understand how important it is to have that hospital up and running. And there are times there are storms here where that hospital is affected because of water. They're taking precautions by putting that barrier up. And you can understand all throughout this area, People are so concerned about storm surge. One woman told us today she wants to get out of her mobile home. She just doesn't know where to go right now. She doesn't want to go to a shelter. Have you seen an increased uh, amount of traffic on the roads as people are encouraged to evacuate? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We were actually talking to some police officers today who've noticed that traffic going out of the city. There are people who are heeding this warning. It's been 100 years since a storm has hit directly into Tampa. So people are concerned about the water, especially with the ground so saturated at this point. All right, Ryan Young in Tampa, Florida. Thank you so much. Let's bring in Barbara Hernandez on the phone. She's a communications director for Pinellas County, which is part of the Tampa Bay area on the west coast of Florida. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us. This is obviously a slow-moving storm. There is concern that it could hover over your area, over the Tampa Bay area, for up to two full days. What what might that mean? Is that your biggest fear right now? Yes, that is our biggest concern at this time. Um, We are preparing proactively to respond to the storm. Uh, It is the first time in over 100 years that we are anticipating a direct hurricane landfall in Pinellas County. And so with that comes extensive preparation and coordination with our residents to make sure that people are ready and safe ahead of the storm. Mandatory evacuation orders have been issued for parts of of, uh, your county. Emergency shelters have been set up. How are those evacuations going? Are people leaving? We have been very successful at getting the message across to our residents and being a highly uh, tourist-driven area. We have also been working with our tourism partners to make sure that our visitors and guests understand the seriousness of the threat, and they have been heeding our advice. As always happens, there are always some people who who stick behind. They want to brave the storm. They don't want to abandon their home. Maybe some of them don't have a car or a place to go. are you concerned that there are some people might, who might not be taking it seriously enough, given that your area hasn't been directly hit by a major hurricane in, in 100 years, as you just noted? 
yes, we are very concerned with that. Um, our message to our residents is don't wait, evacuate if they are under a mandatory evacuation order. And if they are not required to evacuate, make sure that they are sheltering in place by midnight tonight. Again, this is a very serious storm, the likes of which we have not seen in a very long time. Does your county have what you need in terms of supplies from the state of Florida, from the, from the federal government? Do you have enough sandbags? Do you have enough bottled water? Yes, we have had an excellent working relationship with our partners at the state level with the Florida Department of Emergency Management. As a matter of fact, Governor DeSantis was here yesterday meeting with us, hearing what our needs are, and ensuring that we have all of the food, the beverages, the water, and the necessary search and rescue teams deployed and ready to respond as soon as the storm threat is over. All right, Barbara Hernandez, thank you so much. Please stay in touch so we can help shine a light on anything that you're not getting from the federal government that you need. Really appreciate it. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is expected to give a new update on Hurricane Ian in just moments. We will bring that to you live. Plus, how Russian President Vladimir Putin could use sham elections in Ukraine to try to justify using nuclear weapons, perhaps. Then, the story of one Army veteran biking from Nebraska to Washington, D.C. We're going to check in with him on day three of his 2,600-mile journey. Stay with us. Now in our world lead, today was the last day of what many critics are calling a fake election in some occupied areas of Ukraine. This week, Putin will likely declare four partially occupied areas of Ukraine to be Russian territory. Ukraine, the United States, and the rest of NATO have made it clear that these sham referenda, as they're called, will lead to sanctions against Russia, further sanctions. But it, this is about more than just a land grab. The sham referenda could be used by Russia, theoretically, to claim any of that land that Ukraine tries to take back is an attack on Russia, which could, that's the fear, prop up a justification for Putin's stated threat of using nuclear weapons. Now the U.S. is trying to convince the Russian leader that a nuclear war is a war that no one can win. Meanwhile, multiple explosions have been detected on a major undersea Russian gas pipeline, according to a Swedish seismologist. The Nord Stream pipelines, which run from Russia under the Baltic Sea near Sweden and Denmark, are not currently pumping gas to Europe. The timing and rapid drop in pressure are concerning, considering Putin's unprovoked war in Ukraine has put the world's energy supply on the brink of collapse. A Norwegian official says this could be an act of sabotage. The White House says it's, quote, not going to speculate on the cause of any leaks. Moments ago, the European Union Commission president said any deliberate attack to disrupt European energy infrastructure, quote, will lead to the strongest response possible, unquote. Now to Russia, heart-wrenching goodbyes as Russian men get called up to serve in Putin's bloody war. CNN's Ben Wiedemann brings us to a recently liberated Ukrainian town and shows us the horrors that might await these recently drafted men. We want to warn you, some of the images we're about to show you are disturbing. The bodies of dead Russian soldiers are scattered around the town of Pisky Radkivsky killed far from home in what the Kremlin chooses to call a special military operation, but it's a war by any other name. A war into which many more Russians will be thrown now that the so-called partial mobilization has begun, and who may well meet a similar end. This is a bank document found on one of the soldiers. The soldier is from St. Petersburg, and he was born on the 30th of September 2001. He died three days before his birthday. The charred remnants of Russian armor are scattered around town. 
Outgoing artillery pursues an army once considered one of the most powerful on earth. An army that abandoned tanks aplenty, many in working order. Dmitry and his crew are tinkering with one such tank fresh from the battlefield. It has minimal breakage, he says. I can turn it on now without any problems. Sure enough, its motor roars to life. When they run away, they lose not only the tanks, as Oleksandr, but also the ammunition, and the next day it's all used against them. This tank almost ready to go back into action. Piski Radkivsky lies just north of the Donbass region, which after sham referenda, President Vladimir Putin plans to annex to Russia. Yet few here have fond memories of life under Russia's sway. Stanislav is cutting sheet metal to put over the shattered windows of his sister's home. There was looting in spring, he recalls. They were taking everything. Down the road, Varvara and Raisa are back to what they did throughout the Russian occupation. Just sitting here, says Varvara, they didn't bother us. But Raisa found them annoying. Nazis, Nazis, she says. They always ask, where are the Nazis? The Russians have left or lie dead in the dirt, lives wasted or nothing. And Jake, just uh, about three and a half hours ago, this city, Kharkiv, came under Russian missile attack. Uh, We counted five very large explosions, uh, one just about five to six hundred yards from where where we're staying. It knocked out an electrical substation, which basically knocked out electricity in most of this city. Uh, In fact, you see it's just almost pitch black behind us, the few lights maybe uh, coming from generator power. Jake? All right, Ben Wiedemann in Ukraine. Thank you so much. It is the House race that could theoretically determine which party ends up controlling the House of Representatives. And Democrats took a big gamble boosting a ultra-mega candidate in the GOP primary. Will it pay off for them or for MAGA? Stay with us. And our politics lead, all eyes are on Michigan, where a heated congressional race between Republican John Gibbs and Democrat Hillary Shulton could determine which party ends up holding the House majority. CNN's Omar Jimenez is in Michigan, where Gibbs' extreme views are raising some eyebrows and why Democrats could be partly responsible if he wins the election. How's the turnout looking for Saturday? Hillary Skolton is the Democrat running in Michigan's 3rd Congressional District. This is a critical election. Michigan's 3rd Congressional District has been noted as one of the districts that could determine who holds the House majority. Her opponent is John Gibbs. My opponent's name happens to be Hillary. No matter what, not another Hillary. He's a former Trump administration official who's called the results of the 2020 election mathematically impossible and wrote as a college student in the early 2000s, the U.S. has suffered as a result of women's suffrage, now insisting it was satirical. Thank you, President Trump. 
But the Trump-endorsed Gibbs is also someone who the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee spent about $450,000 on for this ad. Too conservative for West Michigan. The amount was more than Gibbs had spent on his entire campaign at the time, seemingly designed to help Gibbs with Trump voters and boost him as a weaker general election candidate than the incumbent Republican, Peter Meyer. Do you feel someone like Gibbs is a much more beatable opponent than Meyer? You know, I wouldn't say that necessarily. At the end of the day, Republicans decided who their standard bearer was going to be in this race, and they chose Mr. Gibbs. The dynamic came at the expense of Congressman Meyer, who lost the primary by fewer than 4,000 votes. I never expected the other side to as well double down in a cynical ploy uh, to put forward the candidate they think is less electable. These are U.S. seats. Some Democratic voters in the Grand Rapids area district weren't fans either. Politics sucks. <laughs> I think that, like, that was money that was wasted. Tactically, I guess I get it. <laughs> well, it bothered me, uh, and I know it bothered others. But some GOP voters don't think Gibbs is the easier candidate at all, appearing at a Michigan rally alongside Donald Trump Jr., Kellyanne Conway, and others. Tell me about why. Oh, I mean, I think he is very strong, and um, I think he's going to be really hard to beat. Many of Gibbs supporters feel they lost their country in 2020. We are uh, in a civilizational fight. It's not so much Democrat versus Republican. It's crazy versus normal. For Democrats, we need every vote. The stakes are similar. This election is a referendum on our democratic ideals as a state and as a nation. There is nothing easy about this race, let me tell you. This is going to be a fight to the finish. Now, this isn't just happening here in Michigan. Nationwide, Democratic-aligned groups have spent millions of dollars across races in Pennsylvania, Maryland, Colorado, to create more, at least perceived, favorable opponents. And I can tell you the Skolton campaign here in Michigan's third feels they would have beaten whoever came out of the GOP primary. But, of course, nationally, it remains to be seen whether these bets end up paying off or backfire. Jake? All right, Omar Jimenez, thank you so much. We should note, last Wednesday we did a segment here on The Lead about John Gibbs and the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee took part of our segment and they've been running an edited version on Twitter. They posted the part where I noted Gibbs' previous opposition to women voting, but somehow they cut out the part where I noted that the DCCC has contributed to the Gibbs campaign by funding almost a half million dollars worth of ads promoting him. First I'm going to play what aired here on The Lead, then we're going to play how the DCCC edited out my words to hide the role that they played in boosting him. Get this, a congressional candidate supported by Donald Trump, by the way, whose past writings and associations indicate that he is against women voting. We're talking about John Gibbs. You might remember him because with some financial support from the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee with ads, which thought he would be an easier candidate for their Democratic nominee to beat. Get this, a congressional candidate supported by Donald Trump, by the way, whose past writings and associations indicate that he is against women voting. We're talking about John Gibbs. Gibbs is a former Trump administration official. We just wanted to set the record straight since apparently the DCCC cannot be counted on to do so. Let's discuss. Uh, Jonah, you have some thoughts on this uh, Michigan primary. And, and look, it's entirely possible. Who knows what's going to happen? It's still a very favorable uh, atmosphere for Republican House candidates. It's entirely possible Gibbs could win. 
Absolutely. And look, I, I get hardball politics, and this is a tactic that both parties have played, uh, have, have played many times in the past. But there's something different if you're saying that, that people like Gibbs, who's uh, a fringe guy, you know, if you're saying that election deniers and, and MAGA types pose an existential threat to democracy, that democracy itself is on the line because if these people get in power, they'll end our 200-plus year experiment with democracy— you should have a little more concern about not helping them get to off, making it easier for them to get to office. We heard an enormous number of people say how brave uh, Representative Meyer was for voting for impeachment and what a profile and courage it was. And yet when it comes down to election time, they're like, yeah, it was courageous, but it, and they, the same people who lament what's happened to the Republican Party are helping purge sane people like Meyer from the Republican Party for hardball cynical political reasons. And I, I just think it's a qualitative difference from normal, you know, pre-Trump politics, and it should be condemned. And uh, David Korn's here. I'm sure he has some thoughts uh, on uh, extremist politics. You have a new book called American Psychosis, a historical investigation of how the Republican Party uh, went uh, crazy. Um, where does John Gibbs fit into uh, the panoply uh, uh, that you document, document in your book? He's in the epilogue for the paperback edition. <laughs> uh, I mean, the book goes over 70 years of the Republican Party exploiting and encouraging far-right fanaticism, extremism. It could be racism, bigotry, paranoia, conspiracy theory, uh, to show that what's the present moment is, didn't come out of nowhere. There were deep roots. Donald Trump was not an aberration. He was a continuation, in some ways an escalation. And so his... MAGA movement, the people out there saying, talking about the big lie, and Gibbs takes it further. As you know, he you know, used to tweet out, this was a CNN story, satanic conspiracy theories about the Democrats. He's been deep in this, this craziness that Trump has encouraged and accepted, and that the whole party has accepted. You see Who's campaigning for him? Donald Trump Jr., Kellyanne Conway. Not the whole party. You got Jonah well, right here. He's, he's not a Republican <laughs> anymore. You, you can't wear that well, badge. Are you not a Republican? Oh, I'm not a Republican anymore. But look, okay. 70 years ago, when you say the Republican Party's all been about racism all the time, 70 years ago, more Republicans voted for the Civil Rights Act than Democrats By did. percentage. By percentage, yeah. yeah. So my point is... But I, they switched. I, they gave that up. Then they dumped that because they thought they could get votes from racism. Yeah, I, I, I think that, that Trump represents more of a break, maybe a psychic break, with the past of the Republican Party than you do. But um, uh, I, I agree with you that whatever it is, is that the Trump represents a sharp turn from what the Republican Party should be. About. Should be. Um, Abby, uh, NBC found an interview that Doug Mastriano, uh, the Republican gubernatorial ca uh, candidate in, in Pennsylvania, did with a radio station, WITF, in November 2019. Mastriano in this interview says that any woman uh, who gets uh, an illegal abortion should be charged with murder. Uh, take a listen. Would that woman who decided to have an abortion, which would be considered an illegal abortion, be charged with murder? Okay, let's go back to the basic question there. Is that a human being? Is that a little boy or girl? If it is, it deserves equal protection on the law. So you're saying yes? Yes, I am. I mean, this is exactly the kind of thing that I think Republicans, frankly, have been trying to run away from. But it's been there. There are many people in the Republican Party who believe that 
if abortion is murder, that the person, you know, committing the murder ought to be charged with a crime. The problem is that that is not a position that I think is frankly tolerable to a majority of Americans in this country. I mean, just to take the time machine back a little bit, I remember back in the 2016 campaign when uh, one Donald Trump as a candidate actually said something very similar in an interview and then had to take it back. Yeah. Uh, because with it was Chris Matthews, with, yeah. with because it was so controversial at the time that he suggested that women ought to be charged with crimes. But today, a Doug Mastriano, who is on the far of the right, uh, is now the nominee to be the governor of a major political party. But I will also say that it is not just him. There are many Republicans who share that view. Uh, and I think the, the task of the Republican Party right now going into the midterms is to try to tamp that down as much as they possibly can. It's just harder now that Roe is not, no longer on the table. And similar to Mastriano in uh, Pennsylvania, in Arizona, we saw where there's an abortion ban now uh, on the books, except for the life of the mother. And I was just talking to a GOP consultant there who said that this was supposed to be the best midterm cycle for Republicans in that state in a while, up and down the ballot. And that now they're basically saying that they're screwed because of the fact that abortion is becoming front and center in that state and that the majority of people they believe in that state are not going to be on the side of Republicans. But, and and, the, and that law dates back to what year? Isn't it in the 19th century? It was century? a territorial it, law, right? Mm-hmm. It wasn't even in, when it was a state. But you know, this gets to my point. The Republican Party can't hide what it is, whether it's wanting, not everybody, but a lot of it wanting to ban abortion as much much as possible or embracing crazy conspiracy theories. Donald Trump, as you guys have covered, you know, embraced QAnon just a couple days ago, right? Fully embraced it, sent out tweets about it. I mean, this is crazy conspiracy extremism. I mean, my argument, Jonah, there's always been part of the Republican DNA, not always dominant, but now it is highly dominant. And it's, you know, they're trying. They'd like to have this election, I think, tomorrow before anything else comes out. And just from a political perspective, I mean, Democrats had wanted going into the cycle to be able to paint Republicans as extreme. That job got so much easier once Roe was overturned. The abortion issue, not all these candidates are running on abortion per se, but they're using abortion as a way in to open up the conversation to voters to say, these candidates are too extreme for you. And that has been very helpful to Democrats, even in states where abortion is not necessarily on its own a a winning issue in states where uh, there are a lot of other issues, especially the economy, they're painting a a wide swath of Republicans with an extremist brush, in part because of the door opened by The the chief justice of the Supreme Court was trying to point to an alternate route for the country when it comes to abortion laws. And also, I I think it's fair to say, for the Republican Party, even though that's not officially what he was doing, he wanted to upheld Mississippi's 15-week ban, would have banned all abortions after 15 weeks, which is probably uh, at least... uh, Well, Tom, what do you think about that? Yeah, so like, the smartest and cagiest... What are you, what are you, whatever you think about their policies or their personalities, Republican politicians, people like Ron DeSantis and Glenn Youngkin, they announced a 15-week cutoff you know, point and then just stopped talking about abortion. And it's worked for them because the 15-week cutoff is actually pretty close to where a lot of American people are. The problem is, is that the Republican Party has no muscle memory to talk about abortion in a, in a nuanced way because Roe took it off the books as, as, a, as a legislative option for 50 years. And so now you have the biggest goofballs like Mastriano who fill the, the void, uh, fill the vacuum, while the smart Republicans are just running for cover and not talking about it at all. 
in, and I, it is worth pointing out, in 2016, you're absolutely right, there was enormous pushback against Donald Trump for saying they punished the mothers, which was an idiotic thing for him to say. The most effective and relevant pushback wasn't from liberals or, or the media. It was from pro-lifers saying, dude, you don't know how to talk about this. This is not what pro-lifers are arguing for. And most of the same pro-lifers I know, and I know lots of them, they don't want to criminally prosecute women for having abortions. That's never been part of the argument. So just in response to David, look, I agree there's something called what Richard Hofstetter called the paranoid style in American politics. Mm -hmm. I just don't think the Republican Party is the sole manifestation of it. It is an American problem. And I agree that the Republican Party is a huge problem with the paranoid style right now. But there are lots of instances over the last 70 years where the Democratic Party and liberals have been guilty of all sorts well, of paranoia. Read as the well. book and then we'll talk. Laura, I, I just want to get Laura's quick take on this because on Monday in Arizona, the minority leader, Senator Mitch McConnell, appeared with the university at the University of Louisville with Senator Kirsten Sinema, the Democrat of Arizona. Uh, listen to what McConnell had to say about her. She is, in my view, and I've told her this before, the most effective first-term senator I've seen in my time in the Senate. Okay, what's going on? <laughs> that, that seems mischievous. That seems mischievous to me. Am I wrong? No, you're, it, it is mischievous. I mean, McConnell, uh, Senator Cinema and Mitch McConnell clearly have a very good relationship. She clearly enjoys and has demonstrated that she enjoys being a senator who works frequently with Republicans, to the dismay of a lot of Democrats in the Senate, to the dismay of a lot of Democrats on the ground in Arizona. And so I think that we should not be surprised when she faces a primary challenge, potentially from uh, House, House member Gallego, because yeah. he's, fr he's forecasting that frequently right now. All right, one and all, thanks for being here. Again, uh, David's book, uh, American Psychosis, available right now on Amazon.com, and uh, even better, go check out your local bookstore. Coming up, the top a law enforcement official in Texas has been accused of running away from a subpoena, uh, literally running away. <laughs> That's one way to avoid getting served. Stay with us. In our national lead, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton is being accused of literally running away from a subpoena. This according to an affidavit filed Monday in federal court. Court documents detail the process server's attempt to deliver subpoenas related to abortion access lawsuits. The server says he saw Paxton run out of his house and into a truck being driven by Paxton's wife. CNN's Ed Lavendera is following the story. And Ed, we, we now learned that a judge has squashed and sealed the subpoenas. So what happened? Well, this is quite the story. Yesterday morning, uh, this person trying to serve a subpoena for an abortion rights group here in Texas showed up at Ken Paxton's house in a Dallas suburb to serve the papers uh, against the attorney general at his home. Uh, according to an affidavit filed in, in court, uh, this person says that uh, Angela Paxton, who is a state senator, that is the AG's wife, answered the door, and she said that the attorney general was too busy to answer, so the man waited outside the home uh, to try to serve the papers uh, a little bit later. Uh, then a little while later, he sees Ken Paxton come out of his garage the man runs up to Ken Paxton, and as soon as, uh, according to this document, Paxton sees the man with the court documents, Paxton runs back, inside, runs back inside the house. Then, a few minutes later, the man says in this court document that he sees Angela Paxton come out of the house, open up several doors to a truck, and then Ken Paxton ran back, back outside into the truck as this man tried to serve uh, the court papers uh, there at their home. So, 
quite the scene that was described in these court documents. All of this lasted about 90 minutes. And just a few hours ago here today, uh, a federal judge in Austin, Texas, quashed the subpoena so Ken Paxton doesn't have to appear. And what has the Texas attorney general said about this? Well, it was quite the, the statement. Uh, initially, he went on a tirade uh, criticizing the media and political opponents for all of this. And then later today, uh, he put out a statement that because of perceived threats uh, and, and threats that he has received, he saw this situation as a threat. We should point out that the man uh, knocked on the door and described himself as someone who was there to serve court papers. But Paxton, in a statement, said, I, took, I take a number of common sense precautions for me and my family when I'm at home. Texans do the same to protect themselves. He is lucky this situation did not escalate further or necessitate force. We should point out a couple of things, Jake. Uh, this idea of a perceived threat. I mean, many people questioning and wondering why would he send out his wife alone to start the car before they drove off. We've also reached out to local police uh, in McKinney, Texas, where Ken Paxton lives. They said that during the 90 minutes that the man was there, they received no calls for help at, at the home. Jake? All right. I love Andera. Thanks so much. Why one Army veteran is biking 1,689 miles from Nebraska to Washington, D.C. We'll tell you his story next. In our buried lead, that's what we call stories that we don't think are getting enough attention, a cross-country bike ride to honor fallen U.S. soldiers who fought in Afghanistan and to raise funds for the survivors. Retired Army Colonel Chris Kalinda has now lost more former troopers under his former command to overdoses and to suicides than he did to deaths in combat. Here's a look into Kalinda's solemn mission. One mile down, 1,688 to go. For most cyclists, biking cross-country would seem like a grueling challenge, but for retired Army Colonel Chris Kalinda, it's a solemn mission. This bicycle ride is, 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 is part of that, just re respecting their service and sacrifice. You see, in 2007... Kalenda led a group of 800 paratroopers in Afghanistan on a particularly brutal tour. He lost six men, three of whom I wrote about in my book about the dangerous and deadly combat outpost Keating. Their deaths are my responsibility. I, you know, I feel that every day. Fifteen years later, Kalenda will bike to each of their graves to visit them, to honor them, to ensure that they are never forgotten. Their names even etched on his bike. I want people to know them as flesh and blood Americans and not just as, as names on the, you know, etched in granite. So Kalinda rides, raising money for both his unit's veterans as well as for a scholarship endowment in the names of the fallen soldiers. I want to do something special to commemorate their service and sacrifice. Kalinda says he's raised more than $120,000 so far and counting. But this trek is also about the other 794 soldiers in Kalinda's unit. As of now, he's lost more men to suicide and overdoses than to the insurgents they once battled. I like to call it PTSN, you know, post-traumatic stress normal, because if you're normal, you are going to be affected by these experiences. There are people who are struggling with belonging and purpose, and we want to get them the resources and support they need. Kalenda has painstakingly mapped out each mile of his 28-day journey visiting the grave sites and families of Sergeant Adrian Hike, Specialist Jacob Lowell, Staff Sergeant Ryan Fritchie, Captain David Boris, and ending in Arlington National Cemetery 
for Major Tom Bostick. Our unit was 91st Cavalry. Y'all are on Highway 91. But first, Kalinda starts here in Spalding, Nebraska, to pay his respects to Private First Class Chris Pfeiffer, surrounded by his loved ones and beloved community. Chris was always on top of it. And in a place like Afghanistan, when you can count on somebody to always do the right thing, that is absolutely invaluable. And with the cheers and support of new friends, Chris Kalinda sets off, determined to follow through on his mission, one pedal stroke at a time. And let's bring in retired Army Colonel Chris Kalinda. Uh, Chris, good to see you. You're in Des Moines uh, right now. How many miles uh, did you did you complete today? Uh, thanks for having me, Jake. Uh, it was it was 80 miles today. So we visited Adrian Hike's grave in in Carroll, Iowa, and uh, and then did 80 miles. Um, Joel Herman, one of our guys who was at Camp Keating, uh, provided escort along with his sister Jenny, and then I've also got my videographer uh, Seth Langbauer, who's not only doing the videos but also doing the, the SAG support. I couldn't have done the last 270 miles the last three days without them. And, and how's the mission going so far? So far, so good. Uh, you know, my, my butt's a little sore, but I feel good. And, uh, you know, we, we, you know, we keep driving on. Um, it, you know, it, it's... People ask me, like, you know, why are you doing this? And, and... Yeah, there's a lot of things like go on in the subconscious, of course. And, and as I'm, you know, pedaling my bike and, and thinking about this question, it's like, oh, it's, it's it's love. That's what it's all about. You know, it's love for the, the six paratroopers from a unit who, uh, who were killed in action. It's, you know, it's love for the 794 um, paratroopers and their families, you know, many of them whom are struggling with, with post-traumatic stress. You know, I I was uh, cycling across uh, Nebraska and Iowa yesterday and going over the Missouri River. And the Missouri River is Glacier Cut River. And, you know, when that, when that glacier moves through, it affects all the terrain around it permanently. Uh, combat is kind of like a glacier moving through people's lives, but at a very high speed. And, and everybody who goes through that is permanently affected by it. And um, our troopers who are now entering this sort of midlife crisis period of their of their lives when you combine that with all the post-traumatic stress that that we all have uh they're actually entering the most dangerous parts of their lives and uh, we want to be there uh they've had my back for 15 15 months and then some and uh i want uh, everybody to know that we got their back too um as uh at the end of this dangerous part of our lives. Chris Kalinda, uh, we're going to keep up with, uh, with your progress and bring our viewers uh, more uh, in the future. Thank you so much for what you're doing. If you at home are interested in supporting Chris's cause, go to honorride.us, honorride.us. You can donate. You could read more there. And remember, if you or anyone you care about needs to talk to a crisis counselor, Please contact the Suicide Hotline by calling or texting 988-988. There is love for you. There is help for you. We'll be right back. The world's number one chess player, who abruptly withdrew from a match after one move, is now saying that his opponent cheated. Magnus Carlsen made the accusation against fellow Grandmaster Hans Niemann, seen here on the right. Niemann, who has admitted to cheating in the past, denies any wrongdoing, and while Carlson has yet to provide any proof. He released a statement, quote, I believe 
that Neiman has cheated more and more recently than he has publicly admitted, unquote. Our coverage continues now with one Ms. Pamela Brown. She's in for Wolf Blitzer in a place right next door. I like to call it the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.